Scripture for the message this morning is from the book of Exodus. We'll be reading all of chapter 32, which I realize is something of a lengthy reading, but it really does comply, uh, comprise one story here. Exodus chapter 32, if you're looking at your pew Bibles, that is, begins on page 60. I ask now that you give your careful attention to this, as it is the very word of God. Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. As For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to him, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned with, with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them, They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, And all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, that they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from his harm, which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, and on one side and on the other side they were written. And the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing, I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. 
For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not, had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the, of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered themselves to him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. Let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Moses said, Consecrate yourself today to the Lord, that he may bestow, upon, bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man is opposed his son and his brother. Now it came to pass the next day that Moses said to his people, You have committed a great sin. Now, so now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray blot me out of your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. Lord God, we are sobered by this incident and perplexed by it. How a people who knew you so well and so intimately could sin so greatly. Lord, we ask for your guidance and enlightenment as we examine this passage Seek to make sense of it and find application from it for our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1954, a man named William Golding wrote a book called Lord of the Flies. You might be familiar with this book or perhaps with one of the film adaptations that have been made from it. The book is about a group of British choir boys who end up in a plane crash on an uncharted island in the Pacific and all of their adult companions and escorts are killed in the crash and they are left to their own devices. And we see that in a relatively short time their fine British manners gradually Shed away or shed away to reveal savage, feral young men capable of shocking sadism, idolatry, and murder. Eventually, the boys are rescued, and when their rescuers come from the British Navy, they revert to their childlike selves and they break down and they sob before a British naval officer. And the officer is shocked. He doesn't understand how such genteel, well-bred young men could become so, in his words, warlike, which is a little ironic since he came to rescue them on an instrument of war. 
And there are all kinds of questions that are raised by this shocking, quick descent into savagery. And the shock of that British naval officer could perhaps also be reflected in reading our passage this morning. Because as we look at this passage here, it too is shocking in its suddenness, in its scope, and in the direction that the Israelites choose to go. And so we're going to review for a moment what actually happens here. We'll try to figure out why it happened. And then finally, we will look at its bearing on our own sin and reconciliation. So what happens here? Well, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. And he has been receiving detailed instruction from God for the governance of Israel. And at the end of chapter 31, he receives these two tablets of stone, which we're told are written by the finger of God. These are, a, these are physical manifestations of the Ten Commandments, which we read earlier, that God proclaimed in Exodus chapter 20. Now, we're told in chapter 24 that Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. And apparently that is long enough for a plurality of the Israelites to conclude that he's never coming back. It's the way that it's told in our story, in just this chapter, that may seem like a abrupt conclusion to draw. And one is left to wonder, well, why didn't they perhaps... I don't know, send a search party to find Moses if they were concerned about his well-being and what had happened to him. But the truth is that the Israelites wanted absolutely nothing to do with this mountain. And they had already been given instructions not even to touch it, and even if an animal were to touch it, that that animal should be destroyed. And when they encountered it in chapter 20, what we didn't read and when we're reading with the Ten Commandments, is that they were told that they saw vivid fire and smoke coming from the mountain. And they heard the voice of the Lord uttering these commandments as loud thunder, except something far more terrifying than thunder, like the loudest thunder you ever had. And they, they heard this voice of God, and after hearing it, they begged Moses only to speak to them on God's behalf and not and that they might never hear the voice of God directly ever again. And Moses then ascends the cloud, the mountain again and he goes into this cloud and fire that are atop the mountain and he disappears from their view. And so we see that Moses really served as a mediator between the people of Israel and a God whom, while certainly they had benefited from his kindness towards them, they still regarded as dangerous and with some justification. And so they reached the conclusion that Moses is not coming back after an extended time in such a God's presence. There are some terrible things that are happening up on this mountain. And they conclude that terrible things have probably happened to Moses at this point. So they approach Aaron, and they say that they don't know what happened to Moses, but could Aaron make for them a God whom they could serve and follow 
further on their journey. And rather than restraining them, Aaron, who I think you're probably aware is Moses' brother, obliges them. He asks for gold from the Israelites. He takes it and he fashions a calf out of it. Now, in spite of what would be the obvious fact that they just made this calf image themselves, the proclamation goes out, here are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. And Aaron responds to that proclamation, and he goes further than simply crafting the image by building an altar to it, declaring a feast to the Lord the next day. And verse 6 describes that feast as sac- with, with sacrifices to these, to these images, and that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And it is this sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play that 1 Corinthians 10 characterizes as the heart of idolatry. It's the worship that they are bringing before this idol. And it is at that very point that God informs Moses that the people have corrupted themselves. And he relates to Moses what had happened, saying that the Israelites have turned aside quickly in God's economy and worshipped the calf and sacrificed to it. God states that he'll destroy Israel and that And it appears that Moses dissuades him from so doing based on God's own reputation and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And Moses and Joshua descend from the mountain and they hear what what Joshua describes as a sound of war, but instead it's the sound of singing and dancing, worship before the calf. And upon seeing that, Moses breaks these tablets of stone. He destroys the calf, he grounds it up, and he casts it on the water and forces all of Israel to drink it. And he presses Aaron and asks, what did they do to you to get him to participate in this infamy? Aaron's account is that they wanted it, so he asked for gold, and presto, out came this calf. Moses sees that the people have broken loose, or is the... New King James says they they become unrestrained. And he calls upon the Levites to exact a reckoning for this sin. And they do. They kill 3,000. And after that, Moses pleads with God for the people acknowledging their great sin, but saying that if somehow God cannot forgive them, then Moses as well should be blotted out of his book. That is God's book. God relents and instructs Moses to lead them ahead and sends a plague as a final recompense for the calf that Aaron made. Now, hearing that story, and I'm presuming this isn't the first time you've heard this story, does any of it strike you as strange? Or does perhaps most of, if not all of this story, strike you as strange? And I'll admit that no no matter how frequently I read this, and I read it at least once a year, it still strikes me as strange. It's like the Lord of the Flies. It is simply jarring in its scope and suddenness of the descent that the Israelites take here. There are some things that I can sort of understand about it, like... Being anxious in the absence of Moses, 
Well, he's in the presence of a God who seems awesome and frightening to them. But it's the response to that anxiety that is simply beyond the pale. To completely abandon such a God and to provoke him. Even just thinking reasonably, if you think God is scary, frightening, awesome, it would seem like the last thing that you'd want to do would be to do something that you know would be taken as a provocation towards him. And yet they do. And they do that not only while standing before the mountain, they do this after. They have seen plagues that brought Egypt to its knees. Egypt, which was one of the great powers of the known world, if not the greatest power, is completely brought to its knees by, by this God. They've seen this God part the Red Sea and subsequently drown the Egyptian army in it. They have seen this God feed them, and presumably still feeding them at this point, with manna from heaven, with which they were completely unfamiliar up until that point. They've seen this God assuage their thirst by drawing water out of a rock. And that last incident, which took place in Exodus 17, was an answer to the question, is the Lord among us or not? And of course, emphatically, he was. Again, it would seem that you would want such a God as this on your side at all times, and you would do your utmost to avoid doing anything that might offend him. And yet, in the face of all of that, they ask for new gods specifically, and Aaron obliges them with this golden calf. Now, it might be from their perspective that a lot of time had passed, that the frightening scene created by God's presence on the mountain, which was described as shaking with fire and thick smoke, convinced them that something must have happened to Moses. Or, maybe it just didn't take very much for Israel to run away from the Lord. And that's an explanation, frankly, that conforms a lot better with their behavior in the wilderness up until now. And where they run, as they run away from the Lord, is where the rest of the nations are, with Egypt being the strongest among them, to worship gods made with their own hands. The gold that this calf is made from comes, no doubt, from the plundering of Egypt on the night that they made flight, which was facilitated by God himself. And the calf is likely a copy of an Egyptian bull god. And so all of this is an ironic return to Egypt, at least in spirit. And that's something that they have been clamoring for every single time something went wrong in the wilderness. Now, compounding that irony is the fact that Moses was receiving instructions immediately before this incident for the right worship and the employment of that very gold in the construction of the tabernacle and the vestments that Aaron himself would wear in the presence of the Lord. 
With the distance that we have from the practice of idolatry in this form, all of this strikes us as particularly absurd and foolhardy. We might be tempted to walk away from the Lord, but certainly not into the arms of some statue. And because of that, it's easy for us to render judgment on the Israelites and consider ourselves above such blatant and foolish infidelity. But I think the key to this is the wandering itself. As Moses said, they had become unrestrained or they had broken loose like a ship removed from its anchor or mooring. And after a ship is removed from its anchor, it's liable to drift anywhere. I'm sure some of you saw the scenes from the recent Hurricane Ian. And when a hurricane comes ashore, it's remarkable where boats end up. Sometimes in people's driveways, sometimes on the roof of buildings, sometimes in front yards. That's a picture of what we are apart from the Lord and what the Israelites were. They've broken loose. They have become susceptible to every wind and every current that might take them somewhere. And because of that, Paul brings up the experience of the Israelites as a warning to us in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what he says in the first five verses here. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then this upshot in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Now, given the fact that Paul specifically says this incident is an example to us for our own instruction, we need to examine the ways that we might imitate their ways and how this idolatry, as foreign as it may seem, might translate to us. And first, we need to consider, I think, the direction that Israelites, the Israelites walked away from God. They walked in the direction of the other nations surrounding them. They wanted to be just like everybody else in the world. For them, that meant fashioning the image of an animal as an idol. For us, it can mean idols that may be more difficult to spot. For us, certainly wealth and all that it can buy is a ready idol, one that may have been uncovered during the pandemic recently as many of us faced uncertainty with regard to our financial well-being exposing just how much we leaned on that and not on the Lord beyond that the desire to fit in with others can readily form an idol even our health and physical fitness can become an idol while all that is true The substance of the direction they walk is one that we could very much follow. 
and that is toward a domesticated God. They had a God that frightened them, who placed demands upon them that they found unreasonable and whose provision was often not to their liking. This was a God that they were very quick to replace with one more readily under their own control. Now does that perhaps begin to sound familiar? Because we too run in many ways toward a more domesticated God. We want a God that we can worship as we please, when we please. We want a God that places few, if any, demands on us, like claiming an entire day of the week. But we want a God who's also there to serve us when needed. And while that manifests itself in particular sins, at the heart, those sins flow from a desire to serve under a more malleable God. The Israelites' sin was shocking and overt. Ours is often more subtle and nuanced, but both are born from rebellion against God. And perhaps if our sin was more shocking and overt, we might more easily see ourselves as sinners and identify with the Israelites. And while we need to see our own tendency through the lens of this passage, one other thing is we need to come away with a clear understanding that the one true God, though he is indeed kind and patient towards us, is no one to be trifled with. Just as they needed Moses to serve as a mediator on their behalf, we need a mediator on our own behalf. And we have the one whom Moses foreshadowed, Christ himself. And as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians, Jesus was in their midst as well. And he serves as a mediator for all of his people in all ages. Jesus pleads on our behalf before a God who's Perfect holiness demands that only the same holiness can come into his presence. Unlike Israel, who was completely unable to to obey the demands of such holiness, Jesus succeeded in obeying in every way. Unlike Moses, who was not required to give his life on behalf of a sinful Israel, and then later failed himself to enter into the promised land because of his sin, Jesus is the mediator who gives his life to reconcile and restore peace between that holy God and his people. We need to be convinced that we are as sinful as these Israelites who conjured up a golden calf and worshipped it. And we are in need of a mediator more powerful than Moses. As shocking as what they did was, it is still within our hearts to do things that are equally bad. Like those children in Lord of the Flies, we are but a few short steps away from being swept into shocking sin and rebellion. The seeds of it are in all of us. Like the Israelites, we are wont to ignore the Lord's kind history of provision to us and grumble and stray in search of something we find more reasonable. For this reason, Paul warns the Corinthians, let him who thinks he stand 
Take heed lest he fall. Each of us has a deep and abiding need for what only Christ can provide us, whether we perceive it or not. We must cling to him through his word, through prayer, through his sacraments, through his people. When we stop doing those things, then we've broken loose. And we can necessarily start to wander. We will likely never bow before a golden calf in our lives, but the impulse that caused the Israelites to do that is still alive and well in each one of us. May God keep our affection such that we cling to him right up until the moment that we see him face to face. Let's pray.